Concentrate, concentrate, concentrate. Keep it in mind, keep it in mind. You mustn't be afraid to dream of the bigger, darling. Just us. The call went out. We aren't the only ones to answer, you know. You're shooting the bullet. You're catching it. Because it's all part of the plan. Are you watching closely? Hello, I'm Ben Brandlinger. And I'm Robert Denfeld. We're your hosts for Must Go Faster. And this is the Chris Nolan Chronicles, part four. So in this episode, Rob and I are going to break down how Nolan brilliantly markets his movies and share our top five Nolan trailers. Ooh. We'll then explore his 2010 Mindbender in Inception. Oh, yeah. Uh, we'll also talk about Nolan's love of practical effects and his disdain for CGI. <laughs> yeah. And to wrap up, we'll discuss the final chapter to his Batman trilogy, The Dark Knight Rises. Yes. Fun so stuff. if you haven't done so yet, a uh, reminder to catch up on the Chris Nolan Chronicles by checking out parts one, two, and three, which are live and available on the Must Go Faster feed. Please do. Let's get into part four, though, and take a look at this Nolan hype machine. So basically, yeah. in other words, how Nolan has been able to uniquely create event-like anticipation through some very creative approaches to movie marketing. So I think throughout his career, Nolan has definitely become known for deploying a lot of different viral marketing stunts mm-hmm. that help promote his film. So some examples, Memento, which we, we actually mentioned this in, in part one, but uh-huh. this is back in 2000. Keep in mind, extremely early stages of the internet right. as we know it. Right. Nolan's brother, Jonathan, designed the movie's website, which provided clues and hints to introduce and tease out the story. Mm-hmm. This was fresh off. Kind of like riding the the Blair Witch craze, mm. which was a pioneer of of like viral movie marketing on the internet, and the website was meant to evoke mystery around the film uh, without providing any concrete info. There were newspaper clips detailing Leonard's uh, murder, hmm. notes, photographs. They also sent out Polaroid pics to random people depicting a bloody and shirtless Leonard uh, pointing to an unmarked spot on his chest, which. Um, I heard. I guess they sent them to random people. I don't right. know. Could you imagine <laughs> receiving one of those? Like, uh, you know. I mean, I will cops. say we were 12 in 2000, so I wasn't on top of all of this, but it did exist yeah. and people were hyped for it for sure. And, you know, The Dark Knight, which we talked about in part three, of course, the why so serious and I believe in Harvey Dent tagline and campaign. So the Nolan marketing team, they activated all these like scavenger hunts for fans to uncover clues at certain locations throughout major cities and kind of incentivizing them to take photographs of their discoveries. Mm-hmm. Uh, their, the film's opening bank high sequence was attached to IMAX prints of I Am Legend seven months before release. Huh. This is a strategy I don't believe had really ever been done before, yeah. and it's one that Nolan has, has used since to promote his other films. Uh-huh. 
And I think that's been a really effective way to just create a ton of buzz when you're able to dump. Here's like six straight minutes of not just like various footage, but like here's a full scene right. and it's in IMAX format. Right. Um, it's, it's worth the price of admission just to go see that early bit of a, a film that's coming out. Well, yeah, I mentioned in part three that literally the only reason why I went to go see <laughs> I Am Legend, <laughs> I Am Legend, right. you know, fine film, but it was to see, I didn't see the IMAX screening, but they attached the Dark Knight trailer, which I think we might be talking about in our top five Nolan trailers uh-huh. because, you know, had to see what Nolan was up to, especially right. with the Joker and everything. So the Dark Knight Rises, their movie market, and this is pretty cool. So again, they're, they're, they had a website where it streamed this encrypted audio file of people chanting and users could decrypt that audio using the hashtag the fire rises and then with each tweet warner brothers would remove a pixel from the web page which then revealed the first official image of bane wow. uh, which i think is a really cool way to you know just to tease out various imagery of the film get fans excited i don't remember and that then, but it sounds cool <laughs> yeah i mean i, I wasn't participating yeah. in like doing fire rises tweets but right. you know this is like in our <laughs> research but uh definitely you know some pretty pretty cool digital marketing there and then yeah for sure Interstellar, um, they did a, a virtual reality walkthrough of the Endurance spacecraft using Oculus Rift technology. It was hosted mm. in major cities across the U.S. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a tenant, they did the trailer drop via Fortnite. I don't... Right. Nolan doesn't strike me as a, a big Fortnite guy. Mm. I, I don't think he's um, on the platform, but nevertheless kind of shows Nolan thinking forward on new ways to kind of help spread the word about his films. And and yeah, I just think these viral marketing techniques, they, they help spark word of mouth, particularly like in online communities. And even though Nolan, he's not someone who has a social media presence himself, like Nolan's not on Twitter. He doesn't have like his own personal Instagram or anything like that. I think he does have a solid grasp on like the internet culture Definitely. and how his fans are going to react. And I think he's kind of, um, you know, structured a lot of the, the marketing knowing, you know, what his fans want. Right. And I think... These tactics are also cool because, like, they help build out these worlds for fans to play in mm-hmm. money months before the film comes out. Mm-hmm. And it leaves, like, these digital breadcrumbs that spark fan interest. Yeah. And I think they enable the film to even have a greater impact on viewers once they finally experience it in theaters because, right. like, they're better primed for it. Yeah. You know? And we'll talk about that a lot with his the way that he constructs the trailers. And, yeah, yeah I mean, I think it just gets people, the way all these little marketing ploys just get people talking and you know, build hype and, you know, the release of fragments of ideas and images like that all ties in well to his whole yeah, arc as a filmmaker, matter. you know, um, yeah, it's yeah. kind of what he's into. So um, it's it's obviously working, you know. Um, yeah, he they've got a good uh, ROI on the marketing, I would say. Right. Um, so you mentioned Nolan trailers. I mean, these things are events themselves. Like I would call them like goosebump factories. Like they make yeah there's been multiple instances of like seeing experiencing a nolan trailer for the first time and having the hair stand up on on my back or on my arm you know and (laughs) there's never been there's never been a case (laughs) right yeah yeah just hairs everywhere just standing up never been a case where i've seen a nolan trailer and like it dampened my enthusiasm for it like i'm always more excited they definitely crank anticipation up they create the sense of wonder by Mm -hmm. just giving you glimpses into the world he's built for each movie like what kind of just crazy shit nolan is like cooked up this time right the the music and sounds that he uses are are just i think kind of the 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 glue that that makes all these trailers so engaging and Uh one of the most influential things nolan has ever done is what's known as i think this is the technical term in my research is 
the Brahms. <laughs> the Brahms. <laughs> that blaring siren sound and editing strategy that typically occurs at the beginning or end of a movie trailer. Yeah. Like, you know it. You know it when you see or hear it. Right. Uh, and it looks like there is some controversy over who technically invented the Brahms, mm. but Nolan definitely popularized it with the Inception trailers. Uh-huh. And since then, this technique has basically been used in basically every blockbuster action epic movie that's come out. Like Hollywood's become obsessed with it. It's definitely uh-huh. become overdone yeah. in a way. And it's, it's, a motif. it's de- no longer no longer fresh. But yeah. I think uh, you know, Nolan's trailer game really went up a notch with with The Dark Knight, and since then has like really just been on another level from his peers. And yeah. it, it wouldn't be an episode, you know, or must go faster if we didn't do at least one top five five. in this series yeah i just want to prime it a little bit um everything you said i i totally agree with um i will say all of these trailers that we chose we we made a collective top five list of of our favorite nolan trailers um they're all structured pretty similarly and Mm -hmm. you know they they have a lot of the same beats like showing all the key figures we hear some key quotes we see iconic imagery from the film but you know and little uh flashes of text sort of describing the the mission and the theme yeah. or moral From of Christopher the story. Nolan. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But we're not we're not given too much of you know the plot or a sense of like fully understanding what we're about to get in the film. You know, it's it just leaves sure. you wanting more, which is yeah. you know highly effective What's for any appetite? trailer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of trailers nowadays completely ruin the film and like Half the time I watch a trailer, I turn it off halfway through because I'm like, all right, I get it. I I either want to see it or I don't, and I don't want to hear or see anything else. You know, like it's well, you gonna... can kind of predict like, oh, I just saw the three acts of this. Yeah, film. It's and it's just like it, it just correlates <laughs> with what you just saw in the trailer. It's like, yeah, okay, the first forty seconds are the first third of the film, and then you know, so on. So it totally kills the idea of a trailer or teaser. Yeah, but I, I, I mean, Nolan I... films they Go maintain ahead. that mystique. yeah well it Um, it just adds to the mystique and the mystery behind it and and you know makes you want to see it um which is the purpose but yeah you provoke like more questions than yeah exactly than answers and i mean i I will say i would love to see a nolan trailer in the future that breaks away from these you know mechanics of the trailers and and goes goes all out nolan and like fucks with our heads a little bit more yeah and you know like is mysterious or haunting or something that subverts our expectations of these trailers. But then again, like I said, who am I to question the marketing master squad that's been getting like (laughs) hundreds of millions of dollars of profit consistently for, you know, the past 15 years. So no one's going into those rooms like, hold on. What if we did things completely different? (laughs) You know, what if we subverted their expectations? (laughs) You're fired. Get the hell out. Um, All right. On that note, Let's do our collective top five. Okay. Rob, what is our, our number five in our top five Nolan trailer? Okay, so we're starting at the end. Uh, very Nolan-y. Yes. It's the first trailer for Dunkirk. He's coming back round. He's coming back round! This first trailer is, it was very popular. Um, I know a lot of, I just remember sort of, 
you know, it came out in 2017 and I remember a lot of chatter about the movie and it's like, oh, Nolan made a war film. Like that's something different and it's exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, well, you know, the trailer is is pretty like narratively structured, uh, you know, in a way that doesn't really hint at the the three part well you know we'll get into the the dunkirk, dunkirk structure in next, in next episode, episode yeah, but yeah. it doesn't really hint at that much it's 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 sort of presented as oh it's gonna be this like narrative war film you know that's pretty straightforward um right. so we do get a little hint in the trailer at this like ticking clock which gets your mind yes. thinking about time and like time manipulation um so but it, yeah i mean it's just a great encapsulation of the film it introduces the the idea and the you know the concept it's obviously a historical factual event but it does give you sort of the basis the base knowledge you need to know what's what's going to happen in this in the story um yeah what what are your thoughts about this trailer so i think in one of the first shots of this trailer and it's one of the first scenes in dunkirk the soldier picking up the we surround you flyer like that's a moment that kind of just makes you gulp like it's a hell <laughs> yeah. of a way to kick things off and just kind of shows the situation that uh-huh. these soldiers are are in. And like all of Nolan's best trailers, it's just full of indelible imagery. Mm-hmm. I think here it's like these foamy, desolate, like almost like sepia tone beaches. Mm-hmm. And then there's like the aerial attacks. There's the uh-huh. looks of many terrified British soldiers. It really right. just captures the, in, in the intensity of the film. And it has, um, this trailer has kind of like a, a very somber feel to it. It's almost Definitely. like defeatist and yeah. the tagline survival is victory, mm-hmm. I think aligns with that. So yeah, really, really great first trailer for Dunkirk. So number four trailer in our top five is the Interstellar official trailer number two. Mm. Couldn't you have told her you were going to save the world? No. Four. When you become a parent. Three. One thing becomes really clear. Two. And that's that you want to make sure your children feel safe. One. Right off the bat, some stellar voiceover work by Michael Caine. Sir Michael <laughs> Caine, sorry, I forgot to say sir. Sure. Uh, and Matthew McConaughey, two of like the most distinct voices in film. Yeah. Really? I mean... I, For different reasons. It, in the distinct... <laughs> yeah. Very different sounding voices, but I, I want to say like, you know, it's hard to find two more purely just distinct voices, like unmistakable voices in those two. Never. This trailer, never. <laughs> um, the use of the countdown from 10 to 1 yeah. via Mission Control. Love that. That works really well, especially just given the story of the film. That's, of course, spliced with with footage as they're showing it. And I think this trailer just, it shows the epic scale of the movie in like a very dramatic tone. And it's not like kind of similar to Dunkirk where it's like, this isn't like a gung-ho, like, let's right. kick ass in space trailer. Like, yeah. this is more... It's a sad movie. A, like, display of, like, you know, sweeping drama and like, kind of, like, formalism. Yeah. And, you know, another aspect of this trailer that I really dig is, like, these repeated cuts to, like, mute silence to, I think, oh, yeah. mimic the experience of being out in outer space, space. Like, the zero yeah. pressure. Yeah. Really, really cool technique. The sound the... cuts out at the very end, and it... It, it yeah. like warps out and feels like right, you're in deep right. space. Yeah, it's cool. The the final shot of the the black hole that was an actual black hole they shot that wasn't CGI. <laughs> right. uh, no, that's just a money shot. Yeah. Um, really no one, that's eerie, a practical effect. <laughs> it's 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 just like 
very eerie, but like wondrous and just uh-huh. kind of, again, wants, leaves you wanting more. And I think this trailer, it, it reveals some, most of the movie's best shots and, you know, we'll yeah. get into interstellar in uh part five, but mm-hmm. yeah, really, really great work. Yeah. I mean, it has that, that shot of McConaughey hugging his young daughter when he's about to leave and it gives you yeah, like a full sure. body chill. Um, so yeah, really effectively encapsulated the film again. Um, without giving away too much. All right, so number three on our top five trailers list, we are going with the third trailer for The Dark Knight Rises. You don't owe these people anymore. You've given them everything. Not everything. Not yet. So chose this this third one. Um, it's a little different, a little more like, you know, experimental than some of these others. Um, just in the fact that it opens with essentially no score, just like this faint this piano. piano. Yeah. And almost for the whole like first minute, there's just a quote from Catwoman about the storm is coming. Uh, there's a little bit about, or Bane has that quote about, I am Gotham's reckoning. What are Uh, you? (laughs) Yeah. Gotham's reckoning. So it's just like, yeah. And there's, there's a lot of like very loud looking shots, you know, there's like gunfire and explosions, but we don't hear it. And it's very effective. It's, it's Mm. a really interesting like technique and it makes for an effective trailer. And yeah, the music slowly builds and we get these more like fast paced cutting and see tiny glimpses of these like really iconic images and, and things that look completely new, but then also some of like the classic Batman dark Knight yeah. shots, you Perched know, are, are in there. Skyscraper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 We hear at the very end, like a bit of that rise chant that's in the film and sure. Sure. Um, and then the quote at the very end, Catwoman or, you know, Selena Kyle is, it says, my mother warned me about getting into cars with strange men. And Batman says, this isn't a car. <laughs> and the <laughs> and crowd the goes bat, wild. Yeah. 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 No, the, uh, yeah. the bat, uh, which they call the bat, like the, yeah, yeah. the aircraft just barrel rolls over a building. And I'm like, it's, I'm hyped. And I'm buying <laughs> a yeah, ticket. Yeah. Buying tickets now. Yeah. I, I, I love that, that, that bit at the end and the way it starts with that, that soft piano key and the way it's just synced to the footage shown. Yeah. Like there's this this one key moment where the piano hits and Bane like falls down in the plane, like towards you. And it's just like, again, really just like effective timing. Another thing I love about this trailer, it's, you know, and it's a quote that's in the film is, you know, when Bane says your punishment must, my my Bane impression (laughs) is probably awful, but like your punishment must be more severe. And it's this like, twinkle in bane's eyes when he delivers this line to batman like he's disappointed and surprised in batman that he doesn't understand in fact like your punishment must be worse before killing him like it's not obvious to you like what you thought it was going to kill you now always got to kick out of that and you know i think this trailer it shows the kind of the arc of the story without giving away too much you know it's bane's introduction to like the fall of batman and then to like the triumph and to close out mm-hmm. there's those bane chants you mentioned blended with like a more traditional batman theme mm. as the bed to again some of the movie's best shots there's the bat in action there's bane mm-hmm. there's the city uprising but uh yeah this was definitely uh you know the marketing for dark Knight rises was was excellent and yeah. you know it, it, it i think dark Knight rises is his biggest 
box office success today. It and is. I think that's partly due to how strong the marketing was leading up to it. Yeah. And, and who doesn't um, want to see the conclusion? You know, they. Yeah, the epic conclusion. Yeah. It's, Maybe it's, they didn't have to market it as much and they still would have found their audience, sure, sure. but the way that they did market it just, you know, added to that and just built that anticipation. So very effective. All right. So number two in the top five Nolan trailers is Inception trailer number uno, numero yes. uno, number one. It's not strictly speaking legal. It's called Inception. so this trailer is just like an adrenaline shot (laughs) to the heart and it opens with like this like bouncy string score and this line by leo i specialize in a very type of security subconscious security like there's so much intrigue just in that line and you're just like i'm in i'm in what what the hell is subconscious security like right I, did you think that in this trailer, it's actually a, a recording, like an ADR post-production recording? It's I don't think it's an actual quote from the movie. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. I, I As you know, we both watched Re- Inception uh, recently for this yeah. pod. We watched it. I, I don't I'm know. And sure. I, I, that does yeah, happen, I mean, he right. says something similar to that, but the way it's recorded, it, it sounds like it's... Uh, just something done in ADR and, and an additional quote that Leo recorded just for the trailer, which mm-hmm. in itself is, a, you know, a, a good hype builder. So right when he drops that line, though, in comes the first Brom. Yeah. Brom. <laughs> and it's on full display here. This is where it was popularized. Um, uh. The tagline, your mind is the scene of the crime. Like right. that just hooks you in amazing score in this trailer just the way it builds and releases like it sounds triumphant but also Mm. like dark and twisted in a way and Mm -hmm. like i gotta say the final 15 seconds of this trailer like do still kind of give me chills like the i have it under control right i need to see it yeah and then and then the the brahms come back in yeah with flashes of just great imagery of like the cafe like everything exploding around right leo and ellen page's character it's just I, I love the way the final fifteen seconds of this trailer are executed and holds up brilliantly. I mean, this trailer basically, you know, almost came out ten years ago, and it's um, it hasn't aged a, a second. Yeah, and I think it doesn't hurt that this cast is like staggeringly good looking. Um, oh, we yeah. can talk about that more <laughs> when we talk about this film, but like, you know, yeah. it's it's Marion Cotillard, it's Ellen Page, yeah. Leo, Tom Hardy, Hardy. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. It's just like yeah handsome beautiful people the oh, whole yeah. way through um so that that helps build the <laughs> sure, anticipation sure, sure. um yeah. i believe it ends with the quote from tom hardy eames character uh you mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger darling and then he fires off that big rocket or whatever yeah, um great. you know that's that's exciting but yeah i mean you almost take for, take it for granted at this point um some of this imagery because we've seen the film multiple times yeah, and yeah. it's hard to remember back to you know, 2010 when this trailer came out. Such an um, innocent time. <laughs> right. And, but like some of these, some of these images just, you know, sort of yeah. draw up the, the magic of cinema. It's like imagery that you've never considered, you know, it's yeah. like new things that your brain has never comprehended. So it's, uh, I mean, that's pretty cool and, and magical. 
absolutely. So we're we're gonna go deep into the into the the world of Inception yeah. soon. <laughs> what is our our number one trailer, Rob? All right. Well, we talked about it a little bit last uh, episode on part three with the Dark Knight, and it's the first original uh, theatrical trailer for the Dark Knight. You've changed things. Forever. There's no going back. See, to them, you're just a freak. It has to be considered the best trailer from Christopher Nolan. One of the best trailers of all time, in my It's my opinion. favorite trailer I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, it's not like the most mysterious, as we said. They're, they're pretty structured, you know, similarly. But um, it, just the way that it... It starts and it's Joker's voice finally. Like everyone knew, you've changed he, things. Yeah, Heath Ledger Forever. was playing Joker, and everyone wants to hear the voice. You know, like that's and the see, key. yeah, footage of him. This see was the, the first makeup. time there had been stills leading up to this, right. but this was and this this trailer gives you Joker. I mean, oh yeah, he is, he is the focal point. It's there are so many <laughs> money shots. Yeah, I mean, this is a perfectly structured trailer. Like everything yeah. in it, just like clicks i even love like just minor like the way like christian bale like smiles in front of Uh the camera like it's just it's immaculate yeah it's a it's like a perfect trailer the you know in the first footage you know uh, who do we got you know commissioner gordon like nothing in his pockets but knives and lint and then the Uh way joker is first introduced with like evening commissioner and then it just slams he looks up licks his dry lips and then why so serious and we're like just off to the freaking races in yeah. this trailer i was gonna um, say a lot of a lot of the iconic uh joker quotes are actually in this the evening commissioner why so serious a little fighting you i like that and he's like and you're gonna love me yeah yeah <laughs> we hear him laugh and he goes it's all part right. of the plan and then the hit me like, <laughs> let's put a smile on that face like, the, yeah the here we go is the only key quote one of the, in yeah. this one it's in the second trailer i believe um mm-hmm. right but yeah i mean we just get a lot of joker which is what everyone wanted to see and hear um i i mentioned this last episode but it opens with the last shot of the film which i think is very cool with yeah with uh you know batman riding up on the bat pod on that that ramp like riding off into the light um yeah, yeah i mean that's Great that's shot. a cool cool little touch i you know this trailer it's 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 an action fest too. Like it doesn't right. pull any punches. Like maybe when we said like the interstellar and Dunkirk show that we ranked a little more understated there. I counted there's 11 different like massive explosions in this trailer, <laughs> wow. like in a two minute stretch. And still though, like it, it does tell like a very cohesive narrative and it's not uh-huh. just like mindless action. And the, um, you know, has one of the best parts of Hans Zimmer's theme, like the dun and you know shows this the semi-truck flip at the end with the let's put a smile on that face and that right. glorious two-note score like yeah, yeah, yeah. as a, it's just like oh just my god it's it, it, just hans it, this, giving us the goods oh yeah it, it really is like i i i've said that it is my favorite movie trailer as someone who's a major enthusiast in, in yeah. film trailers like it is probably my favorite ever it's and it's hard to argue. It's the perfect appetizer and makes you want to watch the trailer again as soon as it ends. You're like, I gotta see that again. I gotta, I gotta yeah. soak in those images. Um, and I can almost hear in my memory the buzz of the theatrical audience 
when I mm. saw this for the first time, um, there were like woos and cheers and clapping and just like chatter um, during a trailer, which is like, yeah. uh, you know, during a, a big, you know, movie as you're watching it, that's expected. Right. But like during a trailer itself to have that kind of audience interaction is rare. It's a hype machine in its purest form. On that note, let's let's get into Inception. Yeah. An idea can transform the world and rewrite all the rules. Which is why I have to steal it. Some quick backstory. After the 2002 uh, completion of Insomnia, Nolan uh, presented Warner Brothers with a treatment for a horror film envisioning dream stealers. Right. Uh, it was like 80 pages. Based on, yeah, lucid dreaming. Uh, sounds quite gnarly. Mm-hmm. He decided that Nolan, you know, he needed more experience. You know, this is pretty early on in his career before right. tackling a production of this magnitude and complexity. Mm-hmm. So he shelled this project, instead worked on Batman Begins, The Prestige, and Dark Knight. Really learned to hone his craft, understand what he, you know, was most skilled at. and then Really slumming it with those three. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, some low-budget indie hits, you know, Dark Knight. <laughs> but the treatment for Inception, finally purchased by Warner Brothers in February 2009, released in the summer of 2010. I remember seeing this IMAX opening weekend at oh, yeah. the uh, one of your favorite places, Rob, the Uvar Hazy IMAX Uvar-Hazy, Center. Yeah. Uvar Hazy, yeah, in Northern Virginia. Yeah, you Chantilly. know where we were living at the time. This was right after we graduated college. You know, yeah, like the summer after we graduated. So, uh-huh. so you know, before I moved to New York, and I, I fired this up on my my movie projector for the rewatch. Ooh. And I got to tell you, at times it felt like I was back at back in the IMAX. Um, <laughs> it was awesome. That's great. Inception filmed in six different countries. Began in Tokyo in June, ended in Canada in November. That's a very long production schedule. Uh-huh. According to cinematographer Wally Pfister, studio executives approached Nolan about making this movie in 3D. Um, mm. He refused the idea, claiming it would distract from the storytelling experience of Inception. You know, remember mm-hmm. when 3D was a thing? Like, this was six months after Avatar was released, which was right. basically like 3D's apex. Like, I think we've... Definitely. There was a moment in time where we thought, like, the next 30 years of film, like, is just going to be in 3D. You know what? I have, to, I have to disagree with you there. I never was on board no, with 3D, a... and I, I just never thought it was going to take... Like, there throughout yeah. film history, there have been little... I mean, 3D happened before, you know? Like, they made an attempt mm-hmm. at it... Uh, it it just was never gonna stick. It's a it's a marketing ploy, and I mean Avatar is cool, but like, do you watch Avatar often? You know, it's uh, I do the 3D Avatar rewatch sometimes. Right. I, I put like, on my 3D goggles. 3D TVs and... never really took off. They they tried, yeah. but I yeah. I knew it was not gonna last very long. Mm-hmm. It, that's how I felt at the time, and still today. All right, um, yeah, respect, yeah. respect. So Inception was his first Best Picture nomination. Mm-hmm. This was, I believe, the first year they expanded. Or maybe I think 2009 was when they expanded it up to 10. But anyway, Inception, I think that's notable. The other Best Picture nom he got was Dunkirk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say, like, this is Nolan's just coolest film. You know, it's a <laughs> heist movie set within the mind. Or as the IMDb logline puts it, quote, a thief who steals corporate secrets through the use of dream-sharing technology is given the inverse task of implant- of planting an idea into the mind of a CEO. Yes. Like, I felt like I was just, like, on LSD reading that out loud, <laughs> you know. Um, but it is, this movie is excitingly original. Like, there really, yeah. 
you know, has its flaws, but there really isn't anything quite like Inception. Well, okay. Yes, you're <laughs> you're correct. Although it is a heavily referential film and I we can get into some of the references yeah. and metaphors going on in this film. Mm-hmm. It is a film about making movies. Uh, that's yes. pretty universally understood at this point. Um, we'll talk about some of the references. I, I really want to throw a few of them at you because um, they're pretty fascinating. Um, yeah, like you said, this movie won four Academy Awards, Best Cinematography, Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing, Best Visual Effects. It was nominated for Original Screenplay, Best Picture, Art Direction, Best Original Score. I mean, it, it ran the gamut of like recognition and finally got some of those awards um and obviously the technical awards especially so i mean do you want to go into more of like the the backstory or can i dive into some hot takes (laughs) (laughs) the hot take chamber is just ready to ready to blow um so we'll I think we should just, let's just talk about the, the story itself a little bit. So sure. I think it is notable. This is actually Nolan's first movie since his debut following. That is a completely original work. So every Nolan film mm-hmm. we've talked about on the Chris Nolan Chronicles from up until now was based on either a remake or, or you know comics, novels, short stories. Of course, Nolan put a very original spin on all that, but this is something that is like purely from the mind of nolan and and it's while, not co-written by his brother jonathan it's, it's yeah like this is can't, I can't it's just all from one person yeah. it's it, not without its flaws but this is just an ambitious remarkable and dazzling screenplay from nolan and yeah i think it's it's a very convoluted story i think that's widely accepted but i think i've always kind of felt that nolan establishes the movie's roles and steps like very clearly throughout and I think it's almost become this overrated point of like, oh, Inception, it's too confusing. Mm. Having said that, uh, I looked this up. The narrative jumps between Dream Layers and the story timeline a total of 223 times. Easy. There there are 399 questions asked in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Some <laughs> people have just... joked that this film should be called Exposition, not Inception. There's a lot okay, of I can see that. Yeah, a lot of yeah. rule explaining. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah, I mean that's you have to for a film like this. Yeah, it's like this the way that it's done. Concept, right? Yeah, the way that it's done, it's like unraveled in a slow manner. Um, I, there's a quote from Nolan here. Uh, he says something like, "The only all right, this is a quote straight from Nolan. Yeah, the only useful definition of narrative I've ever heard is the controlled release of information." And I think that really like summarizes the the structure of this script. It's it's a very like slow the first thirty minutes especially, it's like all just set up and I mean there's yeah. action, there's stuff going on, but mm-hmm. um it's it's really like explaining the rules of the world so that you can follow the last two hours. I saw that in an effort to com- combat confusion, uh, TV broadcasts in Japan included text in the upper left corner of the screen to remind viewers which level of the dream a specific oh, really? scene takes place in. Yeah, wow. so this was happening in Japan. Um, well, Fister did a little bit of that in in terms of the cinematography. Like the, the Joseph Gordon-Levitt hotel stuff looked a little warmer. All of the stuff on the snow chase and that, that action sequence is a little bit bluer on the cool side. And then the stuff in the van is more neutral. Um, mm. I, I saw that was like a conscious, uh, you know, effort from Fister to to separate them slightly visually, at least. So something you alluded to already, you know, no one has said that 
the story is based, um, he based the roles of the Inception team on roles that are used in filmmaking. So yeah. Cobb, the main character played by Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio is the director, Arthur right. is the producer, Ariadne is the production designer, or the writer. is the actor, Sato uh-huh. is the studio, uh, uh, you know, Fisher is, is the audience, you know, he... Nolan said, quote, you know, in trying to write a team-based creative process, I wrote the one I know, which is filmmaking. I think the dream within a dream story device is just so compatible with Nolan's cross-cut storytelling. Like, it just works mm-hmm. so well here. And, you know, we've talked a lot about up at this point about Nolan's love for cross-cutting. And just, like, it almost makes me feel like part of the reason why I decided to do, like, the dream within dream concept is, like, oh, this would work great to cross-cut. You know, like, <laughs> right. and when you're in four layers of the dream and just going from one layer to the next, like, it's, those are just really dazzling sequences. Um, when I was rewatching, like... <laughs> There are just certain lines that just sound absolutely ridiculous, right. like spoken out loud, but it's done in such earnest. Like, uh-huh. it, you know, this movie takes itself, as all Nolan films, like they, these movies take themselves very, very seriously. Yeah, very buttoned There up. is a line that <laughs> that struck me like in the first, like the first act where like Leo is describing like his, his kids and why he can't see them. And he's like, uh-huh. there's this dream I'm having in my son. He's, He's digging for something, maybe a worm. I just like started oh, yeah. laughing. It's like <laughs> yeah. such a like out of place. Like what line. is yeah, yeah. a worm? I, yeah, it's just like so, anyway. <laughs> right. And when you're watching the first 15 minutes of this of this film, like you're thrown right into this world, and you're like, just what am I watching? Like wh- uh-huh. who who are these people? Where are they? What is happening? Is this reality? Is it a dream? What are the stakes here? It it does really just throw you into like the deep end. But then mm-hmm. of course after that opening sequence, it does take its time to really, you know, that exposition, like you said, explain the rules of the film. Right. Um, the globe trotting nature of this movie, I think uh-huh. is, is cool. And very and something new for Nolan after this point, you know, like, you know, yeah, there, you know, the shots in the dark night where he goes out to like Hong Kong, but this is like really like a globe trotting film, like so many yeah. different settings and backgrounds and was shot all over the world. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, maybe a yeah. little more consciously for a global audience. Uh, not that mm. the other films weren't, but yeah. yeah, I mean, it seemed apparent that that was a consideration, at least. Um, how do you walk into Warner Brothers with this more fleshed out script and, and say, I need a $160 million budget for this wholly sort of original concept, albeit heavily referential, as I said, until you mention Leonardo Di- DiCaprio's name, it's like... the. <laughs> Okay, we're on board, <laughs> you know? Right, right, right. Oh, and you we'll want Leo for the out. part? Okay, yeah. yeah. Sign, <laughs> yeah. So I've heard Leo's character in interviews describe um, describe his character Cobb as like going through like a therapy session as he yeah. performs Inception. So he huh. gets like closer to his demons and the things that haunt him as he goes, you know, deeper into Inception and has this kind of like catharsis Uh and like you said that's what really attracted him most to the role yeah um the cast outside of leo ellen page joseph gordon levitt tom hardy marianne cotillard uh and you're not gonna believe this rob michael kane is in this one uh (laughs) shocker shocker um ken watanabe side note some really good fashion on display in this film Mm. just like a nice array of jackets and coats and pants and yeah slick back hair it's all very like european i felt like but (laughs) it is yeah great great suit work i love that shot of them standing on uh wilshire boulevard actually um Mm. very close to ucla 
um, with all of the the five or six main figures standing at like, you know, interestingly blocked um, along the empty street and they're all wearing their like dressed to the nines. Uh, Yeah, I I just love that shot in the movie. The Mal character, Mal, is it Mal Mal or Mal? Mal. Mal. Um, Performed by uh, Marianne Cotillard. You know, I love this performance. I think... Me too. Just like the way she stalks and appears in the dream sequence scene. Like, there's really multiple intense scenes here. Like, mm-hmm. charging towards Ellen Page's character with, with the knife. There's the hotel scene with, like, the broken glass everywhere in the elevator. Like, that shot of her looking up as, like, the elevator rises. Oh, um, man. There's the Chilling. harrowing suicide scene. Just, like, the score and the yeah. looks that, that she gives during these sequences. Like... You know, we talked about at the end of, of, of part three about some of like the new genres we'd like to see Nolan tackle. Like, mm-hmm. I think these scenes with, uh, you know, Marion Cotillard's character are the closest Nolan has gotten to directing like horror. Like these mm-hmm. are horror, like they're, they're, they're staged and executed like, like something out of a horror film and uh-huh. just some of the best, best scenes in the, in the film. Definitely. I totally agree. And so I want to get into some stuff and you'll, you'll hear more about Maul's character in my awards. Um, But so I, I, I truly think this is the film that uh, Nolan was born to make. Um, It kind of ties together all of the themes he's been exploring up to this point in his work. Um, You know, it's manipulation of what we understand about time and space, memory, dreams, consciousness, paradoxes, uh, deceptive narrative structure, perceptions of reality, the infinite potential of the human mind, implanting an idea into a subject's mind, and in Nolan's case, the audience always trying to implant ideas and lies yeah. versus fact. Um, you know, these clearly defined rules, archetypal figures that have to follow the rules in order to survive in the world of the story, like just to name a few, but those are like, <laughs> just, the... name a few. You just name like 34 things. Yeah. Yeah. But like <laughs> all of those are in there and all of yeah, them yeah, are yeah. really in all of his films. And, but they're like brought to the forefront and just like punch you in the face in this, in this script. Um, and yeah. if I, if I were to compare inception to any film and I'm not the first to make this comparison, but I, I sort of, you know, thought of some other reasons i'd compare it to stanley kubrick's 2001 a space odyssey um so if you don't count fear and desire from kubrick which was like an hour and two minute long feature that came out in 50 that i think he like hates too yeah okay. like I he kind of like detaches said, like, himself from it um yeah. so if you don't count that and you start with killer's kiss uh kubrick's 2001 a space odyssey is his seventh feature film and inception is nolan's seventh feature film um it feels like the culminating work of a great director uh it's like wildly ambitious uh sci-fi epic that changes the course of cinema history in many ways as 2001 did obviously um you know say what you will about inception and like some people don't love it as much as others but the cultural impact it had was very profound and meaningful to a wide audience and yeah you know, Nolan actually overtly cites 2001 as like a heavily, uh, a major influence on the film. Well, that also, interior, that yeah, ho- like the hospital, hospital scene, the, the just interior design of right. the hospital room scene at the very end when the oh, you know, yeah. four layers deep in the dream, like that's pulled straight out of 2001. Yeah, it looks like the ending Kubrick. of 2001. And yeah. 
you know, it, it, it deals with many complex themes and has a sort of ambiguous open for debate ending, you know, also like 2001. Um, and then, of course, the obviously com- obvious comparison to uh, the homage of the rotating hallway sequence um, and the teetering hotel restaurant. It's very much inspired by the circular rotating space station in 2001, um, pretty overtly, uh, you know, referencing that and, you know, built practically uh, just as it was for 2001's revolutionary yeah. in the 60s. And yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> it's a cool comparison. Like some people may take that and kind of, harshly disagree but i think what i laid out like it's kind of hard no, to it's argue that they're very case. similar yeah yeah and of course you know 2001 is one of the most like referenced and influential films of all time nolan yeah. you know kubrick's one of his biggest influences and yeah i mean i think you laid out a very clear case of to why um you know that that comparison makes sense um so a few a few just like scene highlights I wanted to hit on before sure. we kind of get into the the ending and the in the awards uh, uh-huh. that we'll, we'll hand out for Inception. So I think the cafe scene with Leo and Ellen Page's character, just like everything exploding around them, just like it just looks so good. It's so yeah. cool. That's one of the first scenes in the movie where you're just like, whoa, like what is, what is going on here? Like right. how did he come up with this this stuff? Um, the I'm going to save that the, for the award later in that scene, I believe. So the, the, when they're in the, uh, like European city, kind of like a France, Italy, uh, like Italian city, uh, folding over itself. Right. Like that is still jaw dropping to look at. Like for a sick, when I was watching that on my projector, you know, my, I have like this cheap projector just like watching it in, my, in my bedroom. I thought it was like in like a planetarium or something watching that. Like it's just, that is such an incredible shot and just like the arc of it and like the fact that it just folds completely over on top of itself. Like it's right. just, I think one of the best shots in, in Nolan's career, the, the chase scene through uh, Mombasa, I think is like underrated. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I just in rewatching, I forgot how effective of a, like a, you know, chase on foot scene that was it's kind of refreshing to see, like just kind of a very, um, straight you know straightforward action scene you know in in a movie like this yeah the van chase and like the pouring rain in the in the first layer of inception just uh-huh. love love that set piece and that third layer the snow compound again mm. just another awesome set piece thrilling sequence with all like the skiing that tom hate uh tom hardy's character is doing uh-huh. it's a uh, very heavily influenced by the james bond film her majesty's secret service yes and i just think like they're just like editing masterstrokes throughout this film. Like, I think it's the best cross-cutting of Nolan's career. The editor, uh, uh, Lee Smith, he's done mm-hmm. a bunch of other Nolan's films, Prestige, Dark Knight, Dunkirk. Uh-huh. Um, and I love that, just like that final kick sequence and like the relief of everyone back on the plane as they wake up and kind of right. looking at each other like, well, that, that was some crazy shit, right? Yeah, you know, like Murphy and yeah, <laughs> yeah, the way yeah, yeah. Leo wakes up. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, um, Ken Watanabe Saito like makes the phone call to clear Cobb's crime so he can right. get back into the US. Yeah, it's all it's all very amazing. <laughs> you want to talk about the ending here just a little bit? So much debated whether this final scene is reality or a dream. The final shot of the totem still spinning you know, talk about an audience reaction in the theater as the credits rolled. Um, I did see that, uh, you know, Sir Michael Caine. So he received the script and he asked Nolan, like, how do I know whether, you know, I'm confused. Is this a dream or reality? And Nolan told him like, hey, Caine, you know, sir, 
If you're in the dream, <laughs> it's, rea- it's, it's reality. Um, if, if you're in the scene, it's reality. So judging by these words, you know, right. and, and keeping in mind that, that Kane is in that final scene with Leo, you could assume that the events that took place are in reality. You could. Um, you know, Cobb is, is not dreaming. You know, Nolan has addressed the ambiguous ending in interviews saying he believes Cobb makes makes it home to his children, although it is open for interpretation by the viewer. Mm-hmm. Um, he claimed that, you know, the point of not seeing whether or not the totem stops spinning is that Cobb no longer obsesses over his dream. So even if he's yeah. still in a in a dream, he has at least gotten over that kind of demon. So in a way, has kind of resolved, even if he's still caught caught in a dream there. Yeah, he was off. He went, finally went off with his kids, and he could see and touch them. And so he didn't want to know. He would prefer to just be in his own subjective reality. That's something that Nolan has said. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think, I personally think that he's still in the first layer of dreams, and that... Yeah to this day he's still stuck yeah i that's that's my interpretation of the ending um when Cobb gets back to james and philippa they're the same age which makes no sense if they're if he's been gone for so long um, as all of his memories um when he picks up james james says look what i've been building we're building a house on the cliff this three-year-old says this it can't be a coincidence. And I only right. no I only noticed this on the this rewatch because I put on the subtitles. Um mm. I just thought yeah, it would help like clarify some of that stuff. And yeah. it's a very interesting quote. Like that's what that's what Leonardo DiCaprio's been doing the whole time. He's building these cliffs and houses and stuff. Uh I just can't think it's uh, a coincidence. And also another thing, it's Maul's totem the whole time. It's not even Cobb's totem that he's spinning. So how does he know if it's working because that's what he explains to ariadne that we learn you cannot show someone else your totem that defeats the purpose and the whole time he's not using his own totem so what the fuck (laughs) (laughs) all right let's um let's get into some awards here uh best moment for me I kind of knew this even going into the rewatch. It's my, definitely my favorite. My favorite moment of the film is the, the zero gravity fight scene, upside yeah. down combat sequence with JGL, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Just the combination mm. of the score, the geometry of that scene, the cross-cutting of the van flipping in slow motion. Like This is just movie magic. Like, how did they do this? And they actually did it. Like, no CGI in in that zero-gravity sequence. They built that shit. He's like a... Joseph Gordon, like, he's, he's like, Spider-Man-like. And the, the <laughs> yeah. score is has this very, like, falling vibe to it. Mm-hmm. And this is just a scene, like, I'll go back and just, like, watch on, on YouTube. Because it, 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 does, it does give me chills. So that is my best moment of Inception, Rob. What is yours? Yeah, it's incredible. Um, so I'm going with the more of like a shot or a, a short sequence here. Uh, and it's actually when um, Arthur and Ariadne, Ellen Page and Joseph Gordon-Levitt are walking on the MC Escher Penrose steps. Yeah. Uh, you know, paradoxical, endless staircase. And I wanted to shout out again here, Wally Pfister, the cinematographer for this and all previous Nolan films up to this point, besides following which Nolan shot himself. Um, 
their relationship concludes with the dark or their collaboration i should say i'm sure they they still have a relationship um concludes with the dark knight rises um so they made uh seven films is that right yes yeah, seven films together yeah. Wally Pfister won the Best Cinematography Oscar for this film. Um, he went on to become a director, and that's why they they ended their collaboration. Um, he wanted to uh, direct rather than uh, be the cinematographer. And this shot just really, to me, encapsulates a lot of what the the film is about. Um, just the paradox and M.C. Escher, uh, you know, references. But this shot took extreme meticulous planning um it had to be mathematically perfect between the angle the distance of the camera from the staircase the lens choice the camera movement speed uh the way that it drops down perfectly for the for the uh you know they were able to visually capture and then break the infinity staircase illusion on film like they Mm. they did it and it's remarkable <laughs> and really the only element of cgi for this whole scene there's a there's a bonus feature about this shot um bonus feature all they, alert yeah all they did was uh took away digitally the the little rig that holds up the end of the staircase where where uh, jgl and ellen page stand at the very end there's a rig holding up that just for safety but everything else they practically built in this like apparently old uh um I guess abandoned sort of like technology building <laughs> um, and yeah. they made it all match the look of this glass building. And so I'm just for the fact that they created an MC Escher illusion on film, like that's my favorite moment. Fair, fair point. Shall we take a look at some paradoxical architecture? You're going to have to master a few tricks if you're going to build three complete dream levels. Excuse me. What kind of tricks? In a dream, you can cheat architecture into impossible shapes. That lets you create closed loops, like the Penrose Steps, the Infinite Staircase. See? Paradox. Best performance, already talked about it a little bit, but it's definitely uh, Marianne Cotillard for me, who's just so sinister and creepy, like... Every time she's on screen, like I was on, still on edge whenever I rewatch Inception. Is that, is that yours as well? Or are you going? Uh, it is. I'm going yeah, with yeah. Marianne Cotillard as Mal Cobb. But it doesn't matter. How can it not matter to you where that train will take you? Because we'll be together. How could you bring her here, Dom? What is this place? It's just a chilling, like bone chilling performance here, and every time we see her it's a critical scene it seems and so much of Cobb's motivations are driven by Maul and you know the lost love archetype um yeah very destructive force in the film and you know obviously quite destructive. uh yeah I mean just sort of the driving motivation for the central character and I will say one of the criticisms of Christopher Nolan up to this point is his handling of female characters and just sort of their lack of depth and yeah uh, complexity and mm-hmm. i think he he very consciously like grappled with that and more central uh interesting female characters and i think successfully did that with mal cobb and then also with uh ariadne uh ellen page's character who really is like 
you could say those two characters are the main characters and most important figures in this movie and and all of his films since then except you know dunkirk i guess uh I don't think there's many, a single female. Not that many like, women in that film, Dunkirk. but because it was, you know, you know, it's a war. I mean, yeah, you know, it's a it's war film based off from, of actual yeah, events and it was the just 40s. male soldiers. Yeah. But yeah, no, that's a great point. Definitely the strongest female character, I think, up into this point of of Nolan's career, and uh-huh. yeah, it's just a hell of a performance. So, uh, soundbite. I'm going with the blaring horns, trombones <laughs> that occur during the kick, and they just get increasingly yeah. louder. I think that's just such a cool device. So inventive. Undeniable. So I'm going with a quote, and it's from the Parisian cafe scene between Cobb and Ariadne um, that we've that you you touched on a little bit. Um, This scene is really heavy on the exposition and essentially explains the rules (laughs) of the dream world that we're in and. Uh, of course, explains the rules to us as well um, that he's, you know, he's he's defining it for Ariadne, who's going to be the builder. But, um, you know, you could choose the, this entire scene as like the the best soundbite. But um, I'm going with the the quote where Dom says to Ariadne, let me ask you a question. You never really remember the beginning of a dream, do you? You always wind up right in the middle of what's going on. Ariadne goes, I guess. Yeah. Cobb says, so how did we end up here? And it's yeah. that moment, that line just like clicked in my head. Deeply profound moment in cinema. Uh, it's it's the power of the cut. Mm. The one moment to another, just the simple cut. And it, it, I, it really, that's what this movie to me is about. That you just accept jumps in time and space. And you, when you watch a movie you just accept those things and you don't even think about it. Your mind is consciously or subconsciously uh, sort of structured. And some people believe because of dreams, it accepts these things that we can, we can just uh, go with these gaps of, of reality or realism. And so to me, that moment sums up a lot of what Nolan was trying to touch on with this film. How could I ever acquire enough detail to make them think that it's reality well dreams they feel real while we're in them right it's only when we wake up that we realize something was actually strange great one so the wtf which i feel like is like named after this movie in a way so you know inception it has it has its plot holes you know when it comes down to you know just the different dream layers and the logic and physics Mm. behind it all the time jumping but my choice for this award is a bit more practical and that is so Cobb's main motivation to see his children again um mm. you know uh he's convinced to perform inception with the promise of you know uh you know Seda using his political connections to allow Cobb to return to the US and reunite with his kids right could they not have just brought Cobb's kids over to Europe with him to live with him there. Like, hey, rather than going through a death-defying dreamscape where you're haunted by your dead wife and risk sure. falling into, into internal limbo, let's just book your kids a red eye. They can <laughs> yeah. live with you out here. Right. Done. Now, of course, the movie would have ended 20 minutes in, but still, like, that is a very, like, why do we need to go through this in order to, 
you know, then you wouldn't really have had much of a movie. But because um, he's still dreaming. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. That, that. That. That's why. But that is mine. What is. What is yours for this? Yeah. I mean, where do we go here? The whole movie. Um. No. To me, you know, the ending is is a key one and and more obvious of an answer. But I'm gonna go with uh the jump in time between young or old Saito and then young Saito sitting at that table with uh Leonardo DiCaprio and Joseph Gordon-Levitt um it's the I mean we're like whoa what's going on here uh Leonardo or Cobb is the same age but Saito has gone back in time seemingly um it doesn't quite make sense we don't know all the rules yet of this world and then you know there's that shootout sequence and uh mal comes and like shoots arthur in the foot and everything's crumbling the dream world is crumbling um and then we see on the surface level uh arthur wakes up and he tells the other guy with them you know give him the push and he's like what he's like dunk him and then he just kicks him <laughs> off the chair into, and he falls into the bathtub, and the yeah. the huge flood just you know consumes the room. I'm this is before we really understand the kick and the dreams within a dream, and it's like it's hard to remember back before you knew the movie. But I, the first time I saw that, I was like, "What the fuck? It just happened!" Like he's in a bathtub, and it's it's just wild. In the kick, what? Duncan. Most lasting image. I'm going with the twirling floating bodies bundled together like Uh, wrapped up like a dreamer cocoon like i just think that's the first image i think of so unique i you know i also i love just to kind of to that point all like the gear and minutia that goes into the act of performing inception the Mm -hmm. the use of briefcases the iv tubes the the totem objects it's like all just like so cool but yeah that twirling of like floating bodies bundled together. It's just, it's again, like it's just one of those images that's like that. I've never really seen that before. So that's my most lasting image. And what I think of first, when I think inception, no doubt. I love when they, on the airplane, when they put Fisher under and then they, they bring out the briefcase, the stewardess brings out the briefcase. And then all of a sudden, uh, like all five of the other people grab their little cables and pull them out of the briefcase. That's such a cool shot. Um, So my most lasting image, the, the image that's always sticks in my head. And the first thing I think about uh, or see in my mind, when I think about this film uh, is mall in the adjacent hotel room sitting on the windowsill. And that scene between Leonardo uh, between the cobs sitting uh, you know across from each other dangling out of windows and then she of course leaps uh, to her death um, that just it had to be something with Mal because I just she's so yeah just everything about that performance like sticks in my mind and this scene especially everything in that hotel room like the the broken champagne glass that gets stepped on repeatedly um, so I'm, yeah. I'm gonna go with that for my most lasting image 
So I think Inception, you know, we talked in part three a lot about the impact, the long lasting impact that uh, Dark Knight has had on culture and the summer blockbuster, et cetera. I think Inception, you know, itself has had quite a legacy in pop culture. So like, I think like the memification of it, like this is definitely a movie that has like lived on as a presence in our pop culture. It's been parodied. It's been referenced a ton and social media with memes, with gifts, like the internet fandom. It's definitely Nolan's most obsessed about film. Like Mm -hmm. we didn't really talk much about all the fan theories of this movie because it would take like four hours, but they're just one Google search away. Go nuts with it. It's crazy out there. Um, and just like <laughs> yeah. the idea of Inception. I think I like, touched on a lot of them. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Your own, your own personal crazy theories. Sure. Um, this idea of Inception, like something within us, within a something, within a something, within a something, like that's yeah. become kind of like an analogy and metaphor for like mm-hmm. just the way we talk, like our language. I don't know if that's true or dramatic, but it's definitely something that's stuck. The use of the Brahms that we've, we've mm. mentioned. Uh, you know, that has had its own legacy. And, you know, the ending is just one of the more talked about in the last 20 years of movies. And Inception, it caps this, like, incredible five-year stretch for Nolan from 2005 to 2010, where he releases Batman Begins, The Prestige, The Dark Knight, and Inception, all in the span of five years. Five years. Like, that is an insane run. And then, you know, at the end of 2019, Rob, you know, we posted our Must Go Faster, you know, on our Instagram top 20 films of the last decade and i put uh-huh. inception at number six very uh, high up there yeah you know after rewatching, I, I i don't think i would go that high but i would mm-hmm. definitely still place it in like the 15 to 20 range yeah. of the 2010s i mean even for um, the the cultural impact alone i think it's, yeah it's just and just yeah every, every everything we talked about i mean i think yeah. it just uh it deserves that slot one last thing, thing i want to say, say oh sorry let me let me do mine <laughs> yeah, then you yeah, can yeah, end it yeah, up yeah, yeah. Uh, of course it's all a dream, Ben. It's a movie. Um, films have been compared to dreams since the beginning of the art form. And now I would say almost every living person has compared one of their dreams to a film or said it was like a movie. It was, I was in a movie. That's the best. So it's a, it's an undeniable, uh, you know, comparison and interesting way of thinking about movie making. Yeah, you know, Limbo, I don't know if we mentioned like the concept of Limbo in this movie. It's defined as like infinite raw subconscious. And I was thinking like, you know, recording this in 2020, like, would you rather be here on Earth or in Limbo right now? Mm. <laughs> Valid question in the year. Can I build happy. houses on cliffs? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. Limbo sounds pretty good. Anyway, let's, um before getting into The Dark Knight Rises, I think we just wanted to talk a little bit more about one of Nolan's biggest directorial trademarks, and that is his loving relationship with practical effects. And it's kind of like a basic rule of thumb of Nolan is like, if a shot can be achieved in real life, you damn better be sure he's going to do it. Or he's, yeah, he's at least going to supplement the CGI with practical. He says that in the the sequence when everything explodes in the the cafe uh, shot, Uh, they shot a lot of that actually in camera a lot of those explosions happened they just added Mm. to it with the the cgi and like the cars really flip and all that stuff because he says he wants to give the the visual effects team something to play with like uh, a reality to add to and and you know sort of uh build upon and this is something that just separates him from so many other directors who just make big budget films at, at the scale that he does like 
it's a stark contrast with something like Marvel films. And, you know, we, mm. we definitely enjoy, you know, some Marvel movies for sure. We've talked about them on this pod. Some. But, like, the difference is glaring. Like, to Nolan, the green screen is, like, is death. Like, he call, he's called right. CGI, you know, boring. And I just think this approach to authenticity, um, you know, it just draws you into the story more because it just feels more real to the viewer. It's like you have a frame of reference because in this point, you know, may seem obvious, like we don't experience the world through CGI. I mean, I guess like, you know, there is, you know, AI and, you know, we're on screens and stuff, but like, it's just a more practical reference point for us. So I think even though most of his films deal with very like fantastical subject matter, because of Nolan's focus on realism and how he opts for practical effects over CG at every chance he gets, those moments in his films, like they hit you more as a viewer and they have more mm-hmm. of a lasting impact because it just all feels more more real, you know? Yeah, definitely. There's a little bit in that uh, Dreams cinema of the subconscious thing where they look at or sort of discuss the excessive video game users and how the they dream and the implications it may have on like the evolution of consciousness, all these heavy game game users. And I think you could say the same about people that watch you know only animated stuff or you know heavily cgi'd films um Mm -hmm. it's it's not it's not our earth or reality and it does affect your subconscious so it's interesting to think about it that way it just to you know tie it into the context of inception um yeah and i mean i'm a huge advocate also of practical effects i think the best films in in history you know mostly came out before uh visual you know cgi was even possible so i mean i love lord of the rings which revolutionized a lot of visual effects but i also think there's really something to be said for trying to do everything in camera as much as you possibly can and just you know building on it if you have to um i just think viewers can feel it and see the differences and i i definitely highly respect uh you know artists that go uh, directors and and craftspeople that go for uh as much as they possibly can in the camera sometimes when you're asked to justify these things like not using green screen you have to just bring it down to well it's so much more fun to do it it's fun for the actors it's fun for me there's nothing more dispiriting than when you turn up the work and there's just a green screen with a couple actors in front of it it's really the magic's not there so you know, Nolan, of course, he's given massive budgets by Warner Brothers, so he he's able, he has the resources to pull it off, but I just right. love how tactile his worlds are, and I, you know, I think something we've talked about before on, the, on this series, like, it's got to be just more fun for the cast and crew to, like, step into, like, these physical contraptions that they've built, rather than just, like, standing in front of a green screen, and I think, yeah. you know, you bring out more authentic performances because of that. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, a few of my just favorite examples of practical effects in Nolan films, like, the semi-truck flipping in the Dark Knight, which we yeah, hit on a bunch in, in part three. Like, just the pressure of, like, I think they only had one chance to pull that off, you know? Right. It's like, how many do-overs are you getting of, like, flipping a semi-truck? Same thing uh, with the hospital exploding. They only had one shot at yeah, that. Yeah, right, right. It's like, oh, dude, can we get a backup walking hospital? away from it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the water planet in Interstellar, apparently that was shot on top of a melting glacier. Like, that sure. didn't require any, any CGI at all. Why not? The, the do- aerial dogfights in Dunkirk, all those uh-huh. were done in the air. They placed IMAX cameras on the actual planes. And then, Insane. as we just talked about, 
that rotating hallway fight in Inception. Those hotel yeah. rooms were built with the ability to be turned upside down. You know, that's all it takes. Yeah. And, you know, a bunch of other sequences in Inception. So let's wrap this episode with a discussion on The Dark Knight Rises. So <laughs> yeah. let's Nolan, do another film. <laughs> yeah. Nolan, he was hesitant. If about you need to take a break here, take a take a sip of water, everybody. Yeah. Listeners, everybody yeah, please. Yeah. It's been uh, a lot. Go watch The Dark Knight Rises uh, and come back to this episode. Right. You listen in, in, in stages, like, you know, in increments. Yeah, so, do what you have to do. Yeah, right. We won't be offended. When Gotham is ashes, you have my permission to die. So, Nolan, he was he was hesitant about returning to the, the Batman series for a third film. Um but agreed after developing a storyline that he felt like would conclude the series on a satisfactory note. He I think wanted that's the, sp- the key. They wanted to conclude the story, sure, sure. the story arc of of this version, this iteration mm-hmm. of the Batman Bruce Wayne character. Yeah, I mean, and he said like in an interview, he's like, "How many good third movies in a franchise can people name?" I mean, I think you can probably count on one hand how many good you know mm-hmm. third of the third film in a, in a trilogy or franchise there is not many the last crusade and he only agreed to make this film basically use it as leverage to warner brothers yeah if if they would fund inception first which is kind of like a, his like passion project and like you sure. said kind of the the ultimate nolan film in a lot of ways um but you know so in part three we talked a lot about the hype for the Dark Knight going into the summer of 2008. But I think this, the Dark Knight Rises was, I think still the single most hyped film of Nolan's career. Just like the anticipation for the final chapter in his Batman trilogy. How are things going to end? The follow-up to the dark freaking night. Like, Mm -hmm. can he top it? The, you know, following up the Joker, you know, like that factor. Tickets for this movie's premiere and IMAX sold out in New York six months in advance i saw it opening weekend i i gotta imagine you did as well rob this was july 2012 oh yeah i saw, I saw it this at the udvarhazi okay back at Museum the udvarhazi in so i was you know up in new york you know and, and moved to new york by then uh-huh. um i saw it at the union square theater with my guys john zaki and Hughes. shout out to them it was a midnight screening on thursday night and you know as we approached the theater I've never seen a crowd ever this big outside of a theater before. Yeah. Lines wrapped around the entire the entire block of, wow. the, of the theater. This was before you could reserve seats ahead of time. So why we showed up so early is so we could snag some some decent seats, you know, as yeah. a group. I did the same and, thing with my buddy TJ at the Air and Space Museum. Shout out to him. There were news trucks, I remember. There was a guy, dude, of course, this is in New York too, like dressed in a full Batman suit. Like, why not? Um, so as, as we stumbled out of the, out of the theater, um, <laughs> after, after this, after this, this late night screening, you know, my friends and I, we did the kind of thing and I'm sure, you know, I'm sure everyone can kind of relate to this is like, oh, so what you, what we think? And we were like, it's good. It's good. You know, like yeah. you, you got to try to convince yourself like, and rationalize what you just saw. Cause you don't want to admit that deep down you, you were let down a after little disappointed being that hyped. Yeah, you knew it was a disappointment. And look, there's plenty of things that I like about this movie, but yeah. as a whole, especially coming off the follow up to Dark Knight, you know, he released and no one released Inception before this. Like, this is, I think, I don't know, to date in Nolan's career at this point, like his most 
flawed film and we'll get into why but but quick, it made the most money it made over a billion dollars globally sure sure and yeah i think it has to be considered the weakest of the the trilogy oh but that's God, really yeah. saying something because sure, this sure, movie sure, is sure. pretty awesome still like it's it's wildly entertaining and and actually super rewatchable and maybe mostly for bane but um you know like there's a lot to like and there's a lot to dislike so it's a complex film yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and we'll get into both of it i remember as we stumbled up on the theater i have to I have to do this quick anecdote it was like 3 a.m streets of you know manhattan uh-huh. this like sketchy dude approaches us asks, asks us what he, we just saw he asked how tom hardy was in it you know specifically uh-huh. and we're like oh yeah no he was really good and he goes like have you seen Bronson? Like the the oh, film yeah, that Bronson yeah. is in, and we were like, no, no, we haven't. And then he just like, I remember just taking this like long drag of a cigarette, and just as he excels, just goes like, gotta watch Bronson, and then just like wandered off into the Gotham night, and like <laughs> that dude is like definitely like incarcerated now. I I don't know. He, he he's like just like very sketchy. Um, and, I ride you know, for Bronson again. You know, Bronson characters. You, yeah, characters. You like you know. You, you encounter at 3 a.m. In, in, yeah. in, you know, in Manhattan um, can, you know, <laughs> sometimes be sketchy, but it's just something, sure. you know, my friends and I would still like joke about, like, gotta see Bronson. You gotta so, see Bronson. And to this man. day, I haven't seen Bronson, so sorry, dude. Bronson's right. cool. I love so, it. So Dark Knight Rises, it takes place eight years after The Dark Knight. Bruce Wayne, Batman, like he's over the role of Batman. He's a disheveled, crippled old man. He's a recluse from the outside world. You know, there hasn't been a con- confirmed sighting of Batman since, you know, the night Harvey Dent died, which is, yeah. you know, the very end of the Dark Knight. He's become Nolan this is- very mythological figure. People are drawing the bat signal with chalk all over the city and, yeah, right. asking, is he going to come back, all the kids and stuff. Yeah. yeah, 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 which is definitely a cool element. And, you know, Nolan has said that this movie's theme deals with pain and with Batman Begins, it was fear. Mm. With Dark Knight, it was chaos, of course, with the Joker and... You know, this story, it, it really leans into the the class uprisings, which is like mm. one of the things I think that's aged the best since its release. Like in rewatching, I was struck by just how relevant some of these themes were today. You know, our country is in a great state of turmoil and social unrest. And yes, according to co-writer Jonathan Nolan, a major influence for The Dark Knight Rises was Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities, which dealt impact, with yeah. revolution and class, class conflict. Um, I think at the time they made this, it was, you know, some of this social mm. unrest was a uh, reflection of the Occupy Wall Street protests that were happening mm. in, in New York then. Um, but I will add to that <clears throat> just the uh, the deep influences of uh, A Tale of Two Cities. Chapter two of that book is called Track of a Storm. And chapter mm. 23 is called Fire Rises. Um, yeah, there you go. And Commissioner Gordon, uh, played by Gary Oldman, is reading an exp- excerpt of the end of the book at Bruce Wayne's grave at the end of the film. He actually mm. reads, he's holding A Tale of Two Cities and reads from it. So pretty, pretty apparent. Casting, there are just so many freaking names in this movie. Like beyond the returning actors of Christian Bale, Morgan Freeman, Gary Oldman, Michael Caine, Sir Michael Caine. Uh, you have Tom Hardy, you have Anne Hathaway, you have Marianne Cotillard, you have Ben Mendelsohn, you have Joseph Gordon-Levitt, you have Matthew Modine. Like it's just high name recognition, high name ID. In, Did in we need Matthew Rises. Modine's Foley character? The, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, Modine, you know. Me, that's the biggest, one of the biggest flaws of this film is, Modine's is just existence. that whole character. I'm out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So let's let's hone in on Tom Hardy. 
Tom Hardy as Bane here. So according yes. to Nolan, Bane was chosen as as this film's villain, villain to test Batman mentally as well as physically. And mm-hmm. this is a hell of a villain. Like it's definitely, you know, it's not as great as a Joker. I mean, what movie villain is, but it is impressive how much Nolan and company followed up the Dark Knight with a foe this this formidable. And and getting back to like the trilogy just before and it ties into to yeah. this character. Um you know, Heath Ledger's performance in The Dark Knight, you know, and the way that they leave him in Arkham Asylum at the end of the film, you think like it's pretty set up for a sequel and then obviously the tragedy of his death uh mm-hmm. didn't allow for that and Heath Ledger's family has actually confirmed that the actor had intended to reprise the role. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, other people that worked on the films have, have sort of uh, confirmed this. Um, obviously, Christopher Nolan was left, you know, having to change that, that side of it. But he, he knew he wanted to always go back to the League of Shadows and tie up that story. And some people consider The Dark Knight Rises as the only, like, true sequel that nolan has done like the dark knight kind of stands alone from batman begins but then the dark knight rises kind of ties up storylines from batman begins and the dark knight it's kind of a sequel to both films in a way um which is really interesting and apparently david goyer and uh christopher nolan when they were writing batman begins sort of had this idea of the way that this film wraps up that they would conclude with uh Bruce Wayne getting away from Batman and finally finding the closure he's been so desperately seeking. Um, so it's interesting, you know, they, they were like, we have something here. If we can see it through to the end, like there was no guarantee that they were going to make two or even three films as we've discussed, but they did know that if they were going to create this epic trilogy that they wanted it to end with some facet of closure so getting back to how that ties into Bane, um, they wanted to find a way, like you said, the this film is about pain, uh, a true physical adversary villain for, for Batman. And, um, you know, in the comics, I don't know if you were going to touch on Bane's like history in the comics. Um, he's actually a character that was created in the 90s. Um, so very late in the run of, of the Batman franchise. Um He was uh, created for the Nightfall Batman series written by Chuck Dixon and drawn by artist Graham Nolan. Um, And he he breaks uh, Batman's back in the comic series (laughs) as he does in this film. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, he appears Bane appears in Batman and Robin. Did you know that played by? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, in like the most silly fashion. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's the yeah. It's terrible. <laughs> I mean, Chuck <laughs> right. Dixon, Chuck Dixon. The, I forgot the, about that though. Yeah, yeah. The original like creator of uh, of the Bane character hates the portrayal of that character in <laughs> Batman and Robin. Um, yeah. Who's actually he? He like he's written as this extremely smart character in the comics and plays that in in The Dark Knight Rises, but in Batman and Robin, he's just like this imbecile figure. And yeah, and he's like, like ba- I think he like says like. Bane as he yeah. walks around it's like a total caricature of yeah of him so you know with bane it's interesting you can't help but compare to the character of the joker and the dark knight like they're both you know straight up domestic terrorists but bane is much more strategic than joker like bane is a as a planner 
Right. Where Joker is like this agent of chaos. Right. Only looks as far ahead as like his next task. These the yeah. dog chasing cars. Bane is is very very methodical. So the the voice dubbing I I, I do need to touch on. So like Dark Knight Rises. Um, Again, yeah, Nolan showed the the opening uh, plane heist sequence attached to IMAX screenings of uh, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. When he did that, many critics found that Tom Hardy's dialogue was difficult to hear. So apparently, Nolan heard these complaints loud and clear and just like jacked up the volume of Bane's mm-hmm. dialogue, particularly in the opening plane sequence. It's yeah. just like kind of like a, oh, can you hear him now? Like, right. you know, and it it's too loud. Like, <laughs> Especially in that first sequence, I was listening to it, I was like, this is ridiculous how much louder the volume is on Bane's dialogue. You know, he's got the mask, it's got the muffled, like, distortion, but it, it's just a little too loud. I like it, though. At least you can talk! Who are you? It doesn't matter who we are. What matters is our plan. The, the chant that's used, uh, I think that's just, yeah. like, a nice new wrinkle to this film. It features the term, uh... Desi Basara, which is Moroccan for the word rise. Rise. Um, so let, let's talk about actually that that opening sequence, which I think is like one of our favorites in The Dark Knight Rises. Yeah. You know, there's the bank heist opening in The Dark Knight, and then you have a plane heist in Dark Knight Rises. And this is just like a high octane, elaborate sequence. Yeah. The first, the first lines from Maine in the film are like, what matters is our plan. Like already mm. showing the contrast to the Joker where like Joker's like screw plans, but he's, you know, already showing that kind of emphasis. Mm-hmm. The, the psychotic look in Bane's eyes when he says like crashing this plane, you know, yeah. like it's like so good. <laughs> yeah. um, he, he, he stiff arm like is holding <laughs> all of his weight. And then he drops down to the next row of seats. When that right, happened, right. I was like, kill me this 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 guy is gonna kill everything (laughs) right yeah you would have just like triple it just been (laughs) like yeah just whatever um i love that shot of um and i think it's in the 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 trailer in our when we mentioned the top five we talked about the top five trailers earlier in this episode of the camera looking up at bane like through the vessel like as he looks down yeah um the whole like being able to draw like blood thing is a bit far-fetched i want to say like i don't mm. really understand the logistics of that uh aiden gillen who plays you know little finger game of thrones mayor yeah. uh, tommy carcetti in the yeah. wire like he's he's just bad in this scene like <laughs> was that really part of your plan like it just I don't <laughs> yeah know, it's just, when we it's, watch it's this i mean you could make an argument he's bad in everything it's kind of like his bit um, I, I dig him in the wire. But, I know, you know, I, it's I guess you know, little, uh, yeah. But I don't know. Maybe he is bad. I don't know. He's bad. Actually. No, but that's know. he plays characters that you're supposed to hate. I mean, that's yeah, yeah, that's yeah. his thing, and he pulls it off really well. But uh, when we watched this uh, last week or whatever with Natalie, um, she goes, "Well, look who the fuck it is." <laughs> like <when> she <laughs> saw him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's always popping up and yeah. things. Um, I another thing I like about the scene is like this introduction of martyrdom, like where Bane mm. tells one of his men to stay in the plane as it crashes. Like oh, they expect right. one of us in the wreckage brother. Like, yeah, that is interesting. Like I, I wish they kind of emphasize that aspect of Bane's appeal more as the mm. story unfolds. Mm-hmm. And then when like the body of the plane just falls through the sky, like that's just the money shot, you know, yeah. full on just like Nolan movie magic. Um, yeah. Just love he's that. left there. Uh, Bane is just being, dragged on that wire holding dr pavel 
and yeah it's iconic image one of my other just favorite scenes in in in, in the film and, and you, you you had mentioned before is the batman bane showdown duel in the sewers you're really Which, stepping on my awards, but that's fine. <laughs> do you want to? Yeah, I mean, no, we, we, fine, we, 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 we can save it. I mean, I just think like Bane's dialogue in this, like just yeah. how he's like taunting and preaching, you know, Mr. Wayne, you know, like right. I was born in it. Like just all yeah, this, yeah, like yeah. It, it, the dialogue is so good um, to see Batman so physically outmatched and like uh-huh. struggling in this. It's a jarring sight. And I just think the, the details of the scene make it so effective. Like I agree. when Bane like athletically like shimmies down the chains. That's another oh, like moment where you're like, oh, just kill me. Like you know, yeah, if yeah. I was in, yeah, yeah. Like I in. I'll save my takes on that scene. The way the uh, the water like dampens Batman's cape to make yeah. him even look even weaker and like shriveled up. You have the sewer water like trickling down. Like it's just a really cool set piece. It culminates in Bane breaking batman's back like one of the big moments in in the comics that you mentioned and i think this is just like there are scenes in the dark knight rises where it just like really delivers and this is this is one of them like the most impressive sequence i think in the in the entire movie yeah and they did redesign um the the mask that bane's bane wears from the comics um it's more of like a you can see his eyes and mouth a little more in in the comic book, uh, but then they've added these like small canisters of painkiller gas uh, to Bane's face that you know look kind of like sharp teeth or something. They're really like haunting, and it's just yeah. a really effectively scary mask. Just the way it like hugs, like goes over yeah. the top of his bald yeah. head, and it's like smothering him. It's very, very like bone chilling. Um, I've seen these comparisons. You know, so we think Bane is really like the big bad in this film, and he is. But it's really a tandem with with he and uh, Talia um, Al Ghul, who we learn. You know, Marion Cotillard's yep. character is playing uh, this character named uh, Miranda Tate. Um, but then we learn at the you know sort of at the very end that she indeed is the young girl in the pit that that climbed out and escaped Talia Al Ghul. They go back and rescue Bane, who helped her escape um, with Ra's al Ghul, uh, Talia's father. So it is, um, I, I just wanted to say it's been sort of uh, looked at as Talia is this character written as Bruce without Batman. She's driven by anger and revenge uh, for this childhood trauma that affected her so deeply. But then Bane is like Batman without Bruce Wayne. He is an evil Batman. He's powered by brute strength and sheer willpower, but he doesn't have that like grasp of humanity that that Bruce Wayne has and that, you know, allows Batman to be for good. Um, so it's like this dueling uh, versions of Bruce slash Batman in this uh, dichotomy, this uh, this dueling villain figure that is talia al ghul and bane combined yeah no that's a great point that i i definitely hadn't thought of i mean i was gonna mention like getting I into kind of credit like dis- I have, i've been reading a lot about <laughs> yeah, yeah right right no but it's no that my, is the, necessarily my original concept <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah i read it so i mentioned earlier on like leaving the theater after seeing this for the first time disappointment my friends and i had and i think just like and this was 
you know, even more evident in the rewatch. The biggest thing that The Dark Knight Rises suffers from, I just think, is like, there's too, there's too much going on. There's too many storylines. Like, it yeah. weighs it down. Like, this is an unhinged screenplay. Like, it, it's just unhinged. Like, it, it is. There's it's a the lot going weakness. on. Yeah. It's like, I think Nolan, you know, he just had too many ideas here. Like, it's, yeah. this movie is two hours and 44 minutes. This is the second longest superhero movie made to date. Endgame is the longest. And, like, you mentioned that Miranda Tate plot. And what you said that actually makes me kind of maybe rethink this take, but I'm just going to say it. Like, I, I would have just, like, scrapped it. Like, the twist and reveal that she's behind it all, like, I just feel. It's wedged in there too late. Her death, like, my father's work is done. And, like, she just dies. Right. Like, it, it's it's so cliche. Like, I think Nolan, he knows better. Like, I, I just, yeah. I, I'm surprised it's, like, the, that's the the take of that shot that they, they used. I think I think it probably felt better on paper, and then it just, like, didn't quite yeah. uh, solidify in, in the film. You know, JGL's character, like, hey, I like me some jgl as much as anyone else but there's too much time i think spent on him like this movie gets Mm -hmm. bogged down in these logistics of like how the police could dismantle bane's army and just like it's just not interesting i don't know i just i think um you know bruce wayne he he spends time down in this like underground prison hole like i'm just not really into that chunk of the movie like there's some Mm -hmm. corny acting in it it just feels like a distraction i do get like the symbology of you know him going down in this hole and rising from it but like yeah. it, it just feels like a distraction and well it's kind of like this go ahead like there isn't enough batman in this batman movie uh-huh. in a way you know like yeah and i just think that again too many ideas too unfocused and especially in like the back half it's just i i think you could have like cut out like a good 25 minutes of this film, even right. though there's like many moments that are incredible. It, it just, and there's dialogue problems. Like you came back to die with your city. When Batman returns, he's like, no, I came back to stop you. It's like, right. what? Like that's the best you could come up with. Yeah. You know, and falls flat. There are great lines. Like, you know, tell me where the trigger is. Then you have my permission to die. The call back <laughs> right. to the earlier scene. Like that's a badass line. You know, there's definitely moments like that, but, um, yeah, I mean, do you? It seems like you agree with. Yeah, that, I mean, I agree. Criticism. I think it could have been tightened up in the edit quite a bit. Maybe trim off twenty minutes here and there. Um, the Joseph Gordon-Levitt character, getting back to that, plays this character named Blake, uh, police officer, becomes a detective. Um, we do learn at the very end or the, in the third act that his first name is Robin. And like th- in the lead up to this film, there was all this anticipation and sort of rumor online that he was playing this Robin character and that there was going to be a sequel and it was going to be, you know, Batman and Robin again or or just Robin like spin off. But that, you know, never came to fruition, I think, for the better. Um I really do like Anne Hathaway's performance in this film as oh, Selena yeah. Kyle uh, yep. slash Catwoman. Um, you know, obviously a foe to Bruce Wayne, Batman at the beginning, steals the pearls, uh, does a lot, you know, steals his fingerprints and gives them to uh, Striver's character, Burn Good Gorman. Um, but I really like Anne Hathaway in this in this film, and obviously she rides off into italy with uh bruce wayne at the end and michael Caine sees them yeah she's not my favorite actor but i think this performance is actually really strong and like helps tie a lot of the film together um so yeah i I just wanted to shout out anne hathaway i think it's a really 
interesting character, and I like a lot of the scenes with her in it. I don't know what you're planning to do with Mr. Wayne's prints, but I'm guessing you'll need his thumb. You don't count so good, huh? Okay, there's an aspect about this film that I actually, like, hate. What is it? This is like, an, this is the first time I think we've used the word hate in this series. Like, you know, we're mostly celebrating our love for Nolan's films, but... Sure. I think I said hate in, in some I, yet, but... I hate just how obvious, even though they shot apparently a lot of this in Pittsburgh. Yeah. How obvious it is just New York City with so many of these establishing shots. Like, oh. even in like the very, one of the very first ones, like it's clearly just the New York City skyline and it just takes you out of it like we applaud Mm. nolan for his world building and like i just think he screws it up here like the very first shots of gotham like oh there's the freedom tower there's the empire state building Mm. like look i've lived in new york for 10 years so like you know i guess i'm more hyper aware of those surroundings but like it's you know there's the brooklyn and manhattan bridges on prominent display it's like look Uh chris i know you don't like cgi but like maybe crop some of that out like i think just in Batman well, especially Begins, when in Dark the Dark Knight, Knight was so heavily Chicago. Yeah, and I guess like, but I feel like in Chicago, you know, obviously I don't know Chicago as well as I do New York. Yeah. There, there weren't moments where I was like, oh, there's the Sears Tower completely. Like it did feel like Gotham and Batman Begins definitely felt like its own fictional world. Like this is just yeah. like, what? Like I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the Empire State Building and like seeing Batman in the foreground. Like, stop it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's just like, Having said that, you know, there are some aspects of the world building in Dark Knight Rises that I do really like. I like the use of, like, snow and, like, daylight during action sequences. I think that's a cool contrast to what Uh he did in The Dark Knight. The use of sewers. Like, no one, like, loves himself some shadowy places. Like, I think that's cool. But, yeah, man, I just, it just, it's, again, like, taking you out of the realism, which is a foundation for why we love Nolan's films. And I just think Mm -hmm. that was a big, a big miss in The Dark Knight Rises. My head's down! This is it! No! No! That's Batman! All right. I've critiqued a lot, a lot of this film. I will say much of those final 20 minutes just absolutely slaps. Uh, mm. The cross cuts of the bat evading those missiles with like Catwoman on the ground on the bat pod. Like there's this specific cut in the sequence where Selena Kyle Catwoman is on the bat pod. She like flies up in the air. The wheels like turn sideways and then it, it lands and it cuts to the bat, like, gliding through the buildings of Gotham, like, trying to lose the tail of these missiles, tracking it. It's just like, man, like, we're, all right, we're, we're rolling here. That's cool stuff. This, this, you know, like, it, it is awesome. I'm watching a comic book. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, the, the 360 flip over the skyscraper, I think that was in the end of the, the, the trailer that we Mm -hmm. put in our top five. Like, that's just like, yes, let's go. Mm -hmm. Um, The ending, you know, the very end, you know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, he infiltrates the Batcave. It basically alludes to him becoming Robin. Alfred sees Bruce Wayne at, like, the cafe in Italy. That's not, I, I, I am, like, critical of, like, the music cue in that scene mm. is off. Like, it comes in when, like, Alfred, like, looks up. 
I think it should have came, you know, look, you know, these guys are experts, but like the music cue should have come back in when it lands, the shot lands on Bruce and Selena are shown. Okay. It's kind of weird because like, it's just like Alfred and he's like just this old guy in a cafe and it's like, wait, why oh, is yeah, this dramatic yeah. music happening? And then it cuts. Right. Yeah. It just feels off. Like I would have just waited it. till it uh-huh. went right to Bruce Wayne and Selena. Yeah, I, I think I noticed that as well this time. Um, but, you know, the... The bat, the design of the bat, it fits that same family as like the tumbler and the bat pod, like Very heavy cool. Blade Runner vibes, like yeah, yeah. gliding and weaving throughout Gotham. The shots of like the bombs going out through Manhattan was like pretty mm-hmm. like disturbing to see. Again, like, you know, we talk about the Dark Knight, like the themes of like just terrorism, like that definitely holds true here in, mm-hmm. in Dark Knight Rises. Um you know, uh, our boy Wally Fister expressed interest in shooting the entirety of this movie in IMAX format. Wow. Um, ultimately, the movie just featured an hour and 12 minutes of IMAX footage, which is a ton. Glutton for punishment. Yeah. Maybe like, he knew it was the last time he wanted to be a, a DP and he was going to go out with a, a right real bang. bang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the IMAX cameras like they proved it just to be too noisy especially for shooting scenes with, with yeah dialogue. and they weigh like a thousand pounds <laughs> right yeah it's pretty tedious to like every single shot with like an IMAX camera still well, they're ground- not they're not that heavy but they're like hundreds of pounds seriously yeah 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 it's still groundbreaking to shoot that much footage in IMAX and that's something yeah. that he started with the Dark Knight and Nolan has continued in his career with other films um, all right let's let's wrap up part part four here, the Chris Nolan Chronicles with some awards for the dark Knight rises. So best moment. This is a moment we haven't talked about yet. My best moment for this is the first emergence, the reemergence of Batman. So this doesn't occur until about 45 minutes into the film. Yeah. And I just love like, this was a, a chill inducing moment in the theater. When I saw it, like the lights cut out in the scene, they're in that like tunnel the music cue cuts back in as Batman like takes the dude out that's on the bike. He pulls out like that electricity weapon. Mm. Just super cool. Um, yeah. You know, there's the wide shot of all the cop cars like going after him. Maybe my favorite shot in the movie. I just love, I love the lighting of all the, the, uh, the cop car lights in just like this master yeah. shot of like hundreds of cars going after him. You just like really huh. understand like how much of a, vigilante he had become uh-huh. and i saw like i was re-watching the scene on youtube like a very smart youtube commenter uh commented that like about the joker and the dark knight being right when he said during the interrogation scene like hey they you know they're on your side now but like they'll cast you out you uh-huh. know it, it basically predicting what would what would happen to him is like yeah the second they don't need you like they'll cast you out they'll paint you as the villain and like you were seeing that play out in this sequence yeah, that's a great choice. Um, so I'm going What's with yours? the the sewer fight scene between Bane and Batman. Oh, you think darkness is your ally? You merely adopted the dark. I was born in it. It's just fucking brutal. This scene. I think <laughs> yeah. it's the most physical fight scene in the history Punished. of Batman. Yeah. 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 Um, it ends with that moment of Bane picking him up, and you know spikes him over his knee and breaks his back and then 
just stone cold pops him in the in the mask like right. just like insanely it's like, yeah it's like brutal. he's already dead man like stop stop the like, way they know, shot that and you just see like the the mask and his skull like crushing and uh it's just there's so much force between every hit it's yep. super intense uh we've already covered that scene pretty well so that's that's my best moment uh how about best performance so I'm going with uh, with Anne Hathaway here. I just think oh, she I just, love that you did. I'm glad. <laughs> I just think she nails it as yeah, Selena Kyle, Catwoman. I think just that very first scene with Bruce, like the the oops and like the score comes in. She like slinks out, like she totally just like changes her body language, like mm-hmm. right, like flips a switch, goes yeah. from this like damsel in distress to like taking full control. And mm-hmm. you know when she like backflips out or like leaps out of the uh, out of the window a really cool score like kicks back in these like really like yeah. striking strings that i think are are really cool but um yeah i mean you know there 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 are plenty of good performances in that but i i think uh that that's my my best performance of dark Knight rises what about you yeah that's a great choice she really embodies the the catwoman uh character so i'm going with tom hardy yes. um I don't really want to belabor the point because we've already discussed it, but um, one of the most memorable and weirdly iconic characters of the 21st century so far, like who, if you've seen this film, who hasn't attempted a Bane impression? Right. Like everyone has tried it. Everyone has butchered it. Um, (laughs) We've butchered it on this pot. Like I have. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just like an undeniably entertaining and weirdly fun performance and just like makes this movie rewatchable dis- despite all the flaws um yeah. so i'm going with tom hardy as bane and we give it back to you the people gotham is yours so best soundbite i'm going just with the bat like the, the yeah the the plane, the bat plane that he has, it's called the bat. Uh-huh. That uh Wayne and Batman rocks in in this movie. Like this thing just sounds like a UFO from like another planet. Like it's <laughs> yeah. I listened to an interview That's with well the, put. Um, the sound editor, uh sound designer Richard King, and he said the bat sound is a combo of five food groups, which are huh. jet, blade, growl, uh, buzz flange, and something called bat moan. Like, this is, like, the terms that he uses. Love it. Um, And I think it just creates this very interesting sonic cocktail. (laughs) And, you know, we talked a bit in part three about just the incredible um, sound design of the Tumblr and the Bat Pod. Like, that continues here with the Dark Knight Rises and the Bat. What What is your best sound bite? It's a great choice, and I appreciate the deep research. Yeah. Um, I'm going with my best soundbite is the deep grunts and groans and guttural uh, just sounds that come out of Bruce Wayne slash Batman in this the entirety yeah. of this film. Like between that fight scene and uh, the, the scene when he his back. Yeah, yeah. He he just really gets like super yeah, guttural yeah. in this film and you can tell he's sort of aging and like weathered. Um the scene when he's in the prison and his back is broken and they put him in that little like 
whatever sling to like straighten his back out again and pops his spine back in place or whatever and just all the sounds that come out of uh bruce wayne's mouth in this movie are my my best sound bite so sounds not words (laughs) yeah right so wtf all right bane bringing wayne to this underground prison in some like remote country abroad like what's the time jump here like bane like takes the time to hand deliver him it's like dude you're you're leading a revolution back in the states like like that whole just sequence like you know bruce while he's down in the prison like he sees the cops like hanging from the bridge on tv so he's in this like bleak desolate underground prison but like they got a tv with cable news on like they got cnn in this hole like i I just don't understand that (laughs) and then like you know he he finally the timeline there is a little yeah yeah, yeah. He, he emerges out of the hole how is he getting back to gotham like he's got connects i know he's you know he's a very rich man but like and i also just like i really don't, I don't like like the first shot of him returning to gotham is just like him in his street clothes in a parking garage like i don't know just like i think the first return of batman to gotham should have been something like in the bat or the pod or like he's like swooping down in his cape like he just not that he like Mm. you know looks like a middle-aged like dad at a mall parking garage like i'm just not into that so i don't know that's kind of like a few things but like it's it's really just like that underground prison sequence and just a lot of the the plot points that that arise from it yeah a little context about that actual filming location so it's it's in india it's called the uh marangar fort uh, I'm sure I pr- mispronounced that, but uh, it's it towers above the city of Jodhpur, uh, India, and that the pit is actually there, sort of adjacent to this fort. You know, you see that fort when he rises uh, out of the pit finally, um, and in that wall, that you know, crazy like ancient step wall uh, that also kind of looks like an M.C. Escher, yeah, uh, you know, graphic art. Um, that is called Chonborai, um, and it's also in India, um, and they, you know, they, they shot it there. Um, so very fascinating, like interesting, real practical locations that they, they shot on. Um, so yeah, uh, my what the fuck moment is during that opening scene, which we've already discussed pretty thoroughly, so I won't dive into everything, but it's when Bane all of a sudden has this like body bag. One of the skydivers brought the, a body bag and uh, he pulls out like this IV and yeah. and just jabs it into Dr. Pavel's yeah. arm. And, and then like it, the blood is flowing into this all dead very body. And I'm like, <laughs> has a plane. Yeah, is, like, and very fast. Like, like what is right. going on? I, I just did not know <laughs> at all what was going on. What am I yeah. watching? The plane is hovering, you know, straight up <laughs> right. and down. The wings flew right. off. Yeah. I, after seeing this scene in IMAX in the Udvarhazi, I was like, is this about to be the best action movie ever yeah, made? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like it's the, a hell of a the scene. first seven minutes are like a total thrill ride. Unbelievable. Clearly, it didn't turn out to be the best action movie ever, but they had me going there for a moment. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's just very, very cool and what the fucky um i i did want to mention all three dark knight films open with the principal villain like hiding in plain sight 
like Ra's al Ghul is, uh, you know, deceivingly not himself. You know, we think it's somebody else. Uh, obviously, the Joker is wearing the mask and reveals himself at the very end. He is part of the team doing the bank robbery. And then this, you know, uh, Bane clearly wanted to be captured and he's wearing the 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 bag over his head and then he's revealed. So it's just an interesting like motif that that threads these movies together. Most lasting image. It's a moment we've kind of hit on, but I think it's yeah the Bane breaking batman's back like specifically the way batman is just like so helpless as bane just like lifts him up over his head batman's like legs are just like stretched out he's like flailing like hopelessly it's just a jarring sight to see batman just that look that weak you know defeated and then yeah yeah so that that is my most lasting uh image in dark Rises. what about you my most lasting image we just talked about is just every time they shoot someone climbing up the pit mm. uh, from below and we just see like the light yeah. at the top and the way that the, the pit is designed, another practical location. Uh, it's very like haunting to think about being in a prison like that. And uh, I just always think about the between the little girl Talia Al Ghul climbing and then uh, Bruce Wayne climbing his way to freedom, uh, that image always lasts with me. So yeah, to wrap up, I know I've been a little hard on Dark Knight Rises, but I will say that it it was a gift to have Nolan direct all three of these yeah. movies. Like it just gives it such a cohesive look, tone, vibe. It just makes it a very stronger set of three films. And while Dark Knight, you know, Rises is definitely the weakest of the trilogy. Like, I'm really glad that Nolan directed it and, you know, that we have it. Because there is definitely a lot of um, aspects to admire. I just think, yeah, as a whole, Mm -hmm. you know, has its flaws. And it's still, you know, as I said, it made over a billion dollars. It's still pretty well-reviewed. Yeah, yeah, no, some people, like, this is, like, there's definitely, like, a hive out there that's, like, this is better than The Dark Knight, you know, I mean. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, like, 87% critics and 90% audience on Rotten Tomatoes. Like, that's that's pretty good for a third film of a trilogy, especially a, a comic book film. So that just says something about Christopher Nolan. He makes agreeable widely consumed mass market you know epics so that's it for part four of the chris nolan chronicles thank you so much for listening reminder to spread the word about the series rate and review it share it on your social media in our next edition of cnc part five we're going to examine why nolan is the ultimate advocate for the in-theater experience we're going to leave our galaxy to talk uh talk interstellar Mm. we're gonna dive into his world war ii flick dunkirk and more so until then peace out and now some words of wisdom from sir michael kane as alfred pennyworth in the dark knight rises maybe it's time we all stop trying to outsmart the truth and let it have its day